I feel like in my situation, like I'm just making artifacts at this point. Right. Like, I'm, I'm not making art. I'm making artifacts. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, you know, like as I think somebody described their records or something like I'm making long playing short selling product <laughs> and I'm completely fine with that. I don't yeah. really care anymore. Like I yeah. like making it. I like And I like Alex Chilton said that like making, you know, if you just make a hundred records, they, they're going to go to those hundred people that want them right they're gonna seek out where they right you know and that's the way i feel about it and i, I really don't i try to make a good conceptual piece of art that uh, i would enjoy i would like like would i like this record yeah. if i had it and i was like right yes yeah. okay i'm done Hi, everyone. Welcome to Magnolia Radio. I'm really happy to welcome my guest this week, who is local Oxford legend Tyler Keith. We talk about growing up in Florida and how he ended up in Oxford, uh, taking classes with Barry Hanna here, the great writer, how he got into playing in rock bands and making records, and he just wrote a book. Uh, all kinds of stuff, man. He makes his own records. He makes records with his band, Preacher's Kids, and Tyler Keith and the Apostles, uh, and he's written a play, and he's got a new novel that's coming out also. I mean, he's just done a at all so uh, it's really good to have an Oxford legend here uh, in the studio and I hope you all enjoy our talk played piano uh yeah my mom was a church piano player cool yeah she was good yeah yeah i guess she took lessons from one of the ladies at the church and she played there a lot my earliest memories i can remember my mom uh, just during the day uh sitting at her piano and playing you know and she would improvise a lot you know just like play all over the songs those folks want to learn a lot of tricks that you can yeah. that are really cool to learn right uh, you know she would play like glory glory hallelujah you know like the way elvis did it or something you know and just like really kind of play uh, all around it and like uh, make it her own and uh, it was always really cool to hear you know it's amazing when you learn a little bit of piano and then you sit down it's like i can play these hymns yeah <laughs> yeah i can play just as i am which right is like because I've heard that like a thousand times. Yeah, it's so ingrained that melody. One more, one more verse. <laughs> During the yeah. well, you know, that's basically how I learned how to play. Was just my mom had gotten uh, me and my sister piano lessons, but and she took to it uh, pretty well. Um, but I, I just didn't uh, for whatever reason. I guess just being like a young southern boy, I just it's like my sister's good at this and I'm not. But some years later, I started playing drums, and so I really wanted to uh, like learn the piano again. And so my mom basically basically just wrote the chords down above all of these like hymns and church songs that we did. And I would just sit there and play them. Uh, and then one day I was just like, okay, yeah, I got it. That's awesome. So I went straight from that into learning like every punk song I can learn. Yeah. So what about you? Did you uh, learn to play guitar first or? I've learned to play guitar. My dad had a bluegrass band growing up and he okay. played bluegrass banjo and had a band and like also played a lot of folk stuff and um, always had a bunch of guitar around and I started playing you know really young my older brother also did you know I was like oh want to do that and uh we had a stand-up bass as well so and my sister played violin so it was kind of like first off we were all in the orchestra my brother played cello and my sister played violin I played viola for a number of years but wow you know then when you get like 
seventh grade, eighth grade. It's not that cool to be carrying <laughs> around. Or I thought it wasn't, you know. Yeah. I'm not the detailed oriented like uh, for learning to read music much. You know what I mean? It's and also got to be when we would have like contests for first chair. You know, like. I, they were, this other guy would always beat me. He was older, and I just I, I didn't think I was like, no, I, I beat him, you know. And yeah, I kind of made me angry. It was probably I was completely probably wrong. Or maybe there was some I mean? politics involved in it. That's what I thought. Yeah, that was what my thinking was. But I'm sure I could have been completely mistaken. Yeah, it's hard to know. Like in your perspective. Yeah, you no, know, it's like in when you take when you're like in little league baseball. You know, I was in little league baseball, and I was always really good. And like would every year when when it came time for the all-stars it was like all the coaches sons got on there and like yeah. i would always be like first alternate and stuff yeah and like the final year i i kept my stat i kept everybody's stats and i was like i'm fucking making it this year <laughs> yeah and i still was the first alternate and it was just like i started at the same time kind of running and it was like i beat you your dad can't help you right Beat, you know, it's like I like that aspect of it, but you know what I mean. I guess maybe being the youngest, you sort of have a chip on your shoulder for oh, yeah. proving yourself. Yeah, you know what I mean. So you're the youngest of three. Of yeah. three, I have an older brother and an older sister. And where did you grow up at? I grew up in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Gulf Pensacola. Breeze. Okay. Yeah. So how did you end up in Oxford? Well, my brother and my brother got a track scholarship to Mississippi College. You know, my dad was kind of adamant about some kind of religious Baptist school anyway. Right. But I was running, and, and my sister went up there for a couple of years. And then I, I went up there for a couple of years on a track cross-country scholarship, which I lost. And like, But I had started, my sister was sending me books back and stuff and um, got a hold of you know um, Geronimo Rex. And I was like, man, I can't wait to go to school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I really loved Hannah. You know, my sister transferred up here when I went to Mississippi College. And I was living here in the summers, like my... Um, Summer of my freshman year in college, I was living in Oxford. Yeah. And my sophomore year, I just, I moved up here in the spring of 91. I had, I lost my scholarship and didn't have any money to go to school. I had to move back with my dad for a few months, which was not pleasant. Yeah. yeah. I was like, that's a good motivator. I was 19. I was like, <laughs> I got to get, and I, I wanted to take Barry's classes yeah. and stuff. And, uh, Came up here and started playing in bands and stuff. Yeah. Um, I'd never really been in a band. I played a lot of music and I had a lot of, I had an electric guitar and like, uh, had played some bass, uh, the stand up just in bluegrass. And I met this guy, Paul Tucker, who from Jackson, who had a bunch of bands and he was like, you, you play bass? And I, I lied. Like, yeah, I play bass. <laughs> I don't have a bass. Oh, I got one. <laughs> That's how I ended up in a band too. Yeah. It was like some guys I knew they were like, we're starting a band and we need a bass player. Yeah. And I was like, sure, I can do that. That's how uh, hard can it be? Right. It's like, this is four strings. That's two less than I'm And I'd kind of known that alternating bass and yeah. stuff, which really it was a good way to learn music because there's no drums and stuff. You have to really, learn rhythm you know right. which is important and keeping and, the rhythm on the bass exactly right kind of the same deal with the classical stuff like you get to be about 12 or 13 and it's like you know i wanted to be pete townsend i didn't want to play bluegrass yeah you know, like right i wanted to smash my guitars and stuff yeah but, yeah and it, i was playing you know my school was this fundamental christian school you know and like yeah 
it was just kind of like rock and roll was not allowed. Right. You know? I mean, you, you were. That's how I grew up, too. Yeah, you were in trouble, and that's right. we couldn't have, you know. And the classical teacher art was great. And I had a, a classmate that's gone on and was a professional violinist and stuff, you know. But I, I just, you know, I, I didn't have to at that point I, because I think it started, it costed a little money. And then my dad was probably, well, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to do it, but. And you ran track and stuff, I did, too. yeah. I started running track in, like, sixth grade, and uh, just they let me on the JV team then yeah. and just ran through high school and uh, col- a couple years in college. That's cool. And uh, just uh, – and my older brother was really good and, like, did well. And, like, uh, I had kind of a traumatic experience where my senior year in high school, my brother had had the school record at 433 and 432 in the mile. Mm-hmm. And I'd run 433 and then the state meet, uh, take off. And I'm just, I'm on, I'm just way ahead and just going around the last curve at like a 428 pace. And yeah, I collapsed like 40 yards from the finish line. Oh I man. Just, and I was, had so much adrenaline. I didn't even know. And I just like, Oh, one of those like, yeah, you see. And like, Right. And I got up and like finished like sixth or something, but it was just like, I was like, this is some kind of fucking sign, you know, God or something <laughs> yeah. that like I knew. And then I got to college and it was like really tough, like, uh, the, the training and I just couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't do it. And I also, I could do the training, but when it came to the races, my legs were so dead, like, and I was just running way in the back of the pack and just didn't feel it. And my brother was killing it. I just realized, like, I'm never going to be right. as good as he is. And if you can't beat your brother at something, it's like... What's the point? What's the point, <laughs> right? And, I, you know, I had ideas about being in a band. And I really wanted to be kind of do some writing at that time as well. And Also, I discovered, like, beer and LSD and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I, I wasn't really interested in school. It was more like experience. I've been really affected by the beats and stuff, you know, like Kerouac when I was like 15 or 16, it was just like blew my mind. And I was just like, whatever, I want to do this, whatever this guy did, I want to, you know. And also getting to Mississippi was really amazing because Florida, where I grew up, the the, the culture is, is kind of... It's kind of hidden and it's not as uh, vibrant in some ways as Mississippi. You got, I, I mean, I was started going to the subway lounge and stuff, you know, it was like seeing blues and stuff for the first time. Yeah. 
And like there was a lot of writers around and it was like uh, the the culture was so evident and vibrant, you know, like the creative culture. And, you know, so. And this was in the 90s? This was in 88. I went to, I graduated in spring of 88, went to MC. I was 17, just turned 18, my, like my second week. Well, that's really interesting. It seems like you already were seeing a pretty big contrast between where you had been in Florida and where you were now in Mississippi. Yeah, it's hard to see your own place i feel like you need to leave and my family was kind of dissolved at that time my parents got divorced soon after i came and it was like my mom moved to kentucky and my dad kind of moved away from our childhood home so it was kind of like i didn't have a place to go back to and they didn't have any money and so i was kind of on my own in mississippi and i i was glad about it you know it was a good thing and oxford especially was interesting at that time when i first got here a lot of like frat stuff was still on camp they would do all that on campus right so you still had the town was kind of like if you lived near the square you could do everything you pay your electricity bill there was james food center there was you know a grocery store there there was a hardware store the post office was still on the square and it was like you know a lot of stuff was on campus but which also when i first got here each frat house had bands so there would be like six bands on and good bands you know a lot they played a lot of covers but they were playing you know like rem and stuff yeah you know that kind of i guess alternative stuff at that time you know college rock which they also still had a college working college station yeah. here with like DJs that right. played what they wanted and different sh- shows. Yeah, ninety two point one, ninety two point one. Yeah, yeah. I used to listen to ninety two point one. I think it was the place where I first heard a lot of rock that wasn't Christian rock. You know, on the radio. And Ron Shapiro had a show for a while. He did world music. Paul Tucker had a show. Okay, back from the garage or something it was wow. like, kind of like an underground garage type show. Yeah, I used to uh, record shows on music on tapes. You know, to carry around with oh, me. Oh yeah, I would tape-ish. do that all the time. Like if I was working with my dad, I would just like set things to record and listen to when I got home, you know? Yeah. So I guess this is a good opportunity to kind of let you know the first time I ever even heard of you or heard your name or anything. It probably would have been in the early 2000s because that's when I really first started kicking around Oxford at all. Uh-huh. I used to go to Uncle Buck's yeah. record store. I worked there for the a square. bit, yeah. And then I also used to go to this place called As Seen on TV. Oh, yeah. I worked there as well. So I probably, I, I think I had seen you around and like just, yeah. but I didn't really know who you were, but I thought you looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> she kind of looked like uh, someone who might yeah. be into cool things. So, but I remember seeing a poster for a show in which uh, was was a poster for for Tyler Keys and the Preachers Kids, and it was this kind of like really interesting uh, uh, poster of of like you sort of yeah. doing this kind of Elvis type of pose um very rock and roll but kind of blurred out too and it was just like super cool and it just really caught my eye as something that's just like this looks like a cool show and the preacher's kids when i saw that name i was like that's the greatest band name of all time (laughs) i wasted my time on teenage kicks Around my bed, I was so wasted when I was. 
I guess we I put out during the pan during the pandemic 2020 the fall I put out a solo record um, called uh, the last drag the last yeah. drag yeah uh, recorded on black and white out of yeah. Memphis and uh, supposed to do some recordings with my old band the Neckbones but uh, we messed up the dates or something and uh, it was conf- so I I just we had the had it booked. I was like, well, I'll just go in there. And I showed up yeah. and uh, Bronson, I was like, you play some drums. And uh, me and him just played, you know, guitar and drums. And then I would overdub the guitars and bass. And he put some bass on there and down in Water Valley. Yeah, dialback sound. Dialback sound. And uh, so, yeah, I was just kind of, which I had done, I did a lot of home recording at that point and uh, uh, would. I had like this Tascam 24 track digital thing. Yeah. You know, and like, I, so I, I already had parts for a lot of those songs. And normally I would just, the band I play with, you know, I trust the people to p- put good parts on there. Yeah. I might suggest something, but so it was kind of basically like making a home recording, you know, in high fidelity. So it was, yeah. it was pretty fun to actually put the exact parts that you heard in your head on. I've never really done that, yeah. you know, so that, that was really fun and just, uh, just kind of see what happens. But, um, part of it for me is kind of obsessively recorded at my house for years because at some point the bands I was, was in like the neck bones, we, we just stopped practicing and people moved to Memphis and stuff. So I was just like, I, I really enjoyed the initial when you first get in a band and you're playing like practicing like three times a week and right. you're just like working on stuff as it's happening, you know, like, yeah. Hey, I got this riff and this lyric idea and then you can work it out while you're right. practicing you know sort of improvise on some lyrics so i started doing that on a four track and you usually having like the first verse and chorus but then sort of improvising on you know and using the four track as a real writing tool and you know now did you do this in the old days or is that sort of i a did new- i did that in the old days a lot you know but i just had the task cam four track and i didn't bounce it so it's like four tracks one track for the drum one bass guitar vocal and then sometimes like doubling up while you're s- playing singing at the same you know what i mean yeah yeah because if you sing at the same time then you got five exactly you get creative on how you stack stuff it's kind of the way you know the stones and the beatles and stuff did that in the early 60s you know like and so but anyway yeah i always did a lot of that and then one time uh i was working at the oxford state company and it went out of business and I got unemployment for the first time in my life and I read this quote by the writer Robert Stone that said unemployment is the poor man's Guggenheim and I was like I'm gonna use this like my hundred and thirty dollars a week my rent was 300 bucks a month yeah and I was like I'm just gonna use this yeah as a you know a government grant for you know and uh I I just I did I just wrote every day and I worked on stuff and uh recorded you know just constantly and uh you know that's when i really kind of put together the outlaw biker but also like so many songs like i had uh just so much material backed up they just and i continued to do it so even to this day like from sort of almost from you know just that discipline at the time and maybe the from probably that was like i don't know late 2006 or 7 or something and then then continued to do a a lot of just got into a habit of recording a lot like 
like that and until probably five or six years ago. Yeah. And I don't do it as much as I used to, but I've had so much, I still have so much material just from that, those times. And some songs, and also when you're in a band, you sort of pick the material as to who you're playing with and what, you know, this is so doing the solo thing. I could just, I just pick the songs that I really liked without yeah. any thinking of like, you know, if is this right for this band or something? Well, you know, I've listened to that record a lot. And what I really like about it is you sort of write uh, through these characters and you even have characters that are sort of referenced in different songs and, and through older records. And I love stuff like that. I try to do it as much as I can myself. I'm a sucker for songwriters who just kind of build this little world that they live in. So I guess I did want to ask you, is that intentional? Is that something that's more recent or does that go back as far you know as you've been uh, making songs it took me a long time to realize that every song didn't have to be exactly true like right. you know, i realized that you could have like a character or something and you could use that as a vehicle for what you're going through or whatever but it took me a lot it took me a while to realize that yeah. i just thought everything's got to be you know, this has to be real. And you can still do that. But, you know, I kind of just really, I always loved the Velvet Underground and stuff. And But I, I always felt Lou Reed did a lot of that, especially in his solo records, you know, just like the character in Coney Island Baby and stuff, you know, and like some of those, you know, growing up in pub. I always thought there was always a lot of characters and and that I really admired that style, you know. So or, let me ask you, at what point in your life do you think you figured that out? I mean, I figured that out. I was probably like 30. I'd been writing songs for about six or eight years, about eight years. Now, were you doing any other type of writing around that time? Well, you know, I came here and I took Barry Hanna's class for undergrad and grad grad level. And those are fiction, fiction writing classes? Fiction, short story classes. And like, I was really into, wanted to do that, you know, but uh, I started playing in the neck bones and writing, started writing songs and stuff. And like, Hanna himself was even like, you're going to have to choose between... You know, the songs and the, you know, the stories. I was like, ah, that's not true. But yeah. he was right at the time because I became obsessive about songs, you know, and it's like, uh, well, I, I would write a lot of, I would write stories and stuff now and again and not finish them. And then like, just like, oh, we got to make a wreck. I would just kind of put them aside. And I, I started a bunch of novels that didn't go anywhere and I got, uh, discouraged and would just put them down and just like, you know, and I think the first song I wrote like that was this song called Kid Twist. Which uh -huh. was, I was reading the, the Gangs of New York book and uh, there was a character in there. And I just thought, like, first off, that was a great name. And then yeah. like, I thought about, like, uh, and, and I was having a particular relationship where the, a person's that was seeing parents hated me so i was kind of thinking like about like somebody for you know like kind of the the two sides of the track type thing where you just have a and so that that was the first incident you know one of the most classic tales of all time really <laughs> yeah. shakespeare wrote about it you know and it's real yeah, yeah. and it actually happens quite a bit Especially if you're a musician, like, I mean, I don't blame a, a girl's woman's parents for seeing me and say, this is not the guy for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I totally understand that, yeah. you know, but, All right. and at the time it just, you know, maybe you just have a lot of anger about it. Stuff, yeah. But it, oh, yeah. I've been there. But, you know, so that, 
that was the first. But then, you know, from there, I just, uh, and also around that time started on the, 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 uh, this outlaw biker musical. So I started writing songs from a point of view of these characters for a, you know, a stage play thing. completely forgot that you did that and uh, now that i'm thinking about it you know i have so many friends in town here who were actors and who were like involved in that production and uh, i never saw it myself i still can't believe that happened it was so much fun like i have such good friends that they agreed to do this because it's, it was completely ridiculous but it worked it was so fun and like uh, yeah i mean people still talk about how much fun they had doing that oh man we had a blast. and good for you for like being able to put on something like that i would never even think to conceive to try to do something like that yeah you know what i mean well see i had written the thing and would tell people about it i was like oh, i got i wrote this like biker musical and people would be like okay whatever and then finally i get i was talking to andy douglas and gave it to him i was like here's i was like oh we could do this i was like really he's like yeah. yeah all right and he we just started having uh you know started doing rehearsals and stuff a few months out on sunday nights at the powerhouse and it was just like wow this is actually happening yeah and and andy directed it right he did direct it yeah he directed it he was just like the first guy to say yeah this can be done. <laughs> what I think is great about it too is that y'all just like assembled this cast of uh actors from like the bar where everyone was hanging out. Yeah, there's a lot of characters in Oxford and uh <laughs> Yeah, it's true. You know, I, I knew that uh it had real actor Johnny McPhail. Right, yeah. And uh of true detective fame. And uh David Shirley, you know, and it was just a lot of fun, but uh it was I definitely understand now the uh people's love of the theater like i think the derogatory term dra drama nerd like i wish i would have been that but like as you know we were talking earlier the the way i grew up and the school i grew up in from kindergarten to 12th grade was like this kind of fundamental christian school and the sort of the choices of the drama stuff was like not really interesting you know yeah uh, but I, I was on the stage crew because mm -hmm. i got out of study hall and stuff you know? <laughs> but uh yeah i definitely understand it it was such a, a electric environment and just it's such a huge collaborative thing that's just and just the, i remember this the moment when everybody just it starts out with all these bikers just kind of strolling on stage real slow and we were, had a live band um 
me and Van and Max Hip and uh, Wallace Lester yeah. are on stage playing, and they just are coming out as kind of like sort of fake rumble song and it was just like man it was exciting you know like yeah all this leather and stuff and you know i'm fairly new to uh stage play world myself i guess it sounds like we kind of grew up in a lot of the the same way um i guess one of the main differences is in about the fifth grade my mom started homeschooling us so i never even had the opportunity to be in a play or anything like that you know and i never saw plays it just wasn't in our world but my wife, Sarah, she went to a real good school in Northern Virginia, and she was, I guess, what you would call a drama nerd, like what she said before. Uh, that's what she called herself and or calls herself. And, um, you know, she still has like really close friends now who are in drama with her. And so she's been taking me to these plays. And we were just in Ireland this summer and we saw a really great play there in Dublin. And it's sort of changed my life. Like I'm, I'm really into plays now, you know? Yeah. But I'm also just like really interested in people who grew up, uh, in drama and all that stuff and like all the connections you make and everything, you know, I really missed out. I tried out for a play when I was, went a freshman in college and it, I, I did not do well and it, I didn't get any parts. <laughs> I don't think I could do it. It's, it's so different, you know, it's just, but also being a songwriter, I kind of think of that as you're sort of playing a character all the time and you're collaborating with other people also. Do you think it's similar? I mean, I've had so like just countless people say like, I can't believe you're the same guy that's up there because <laughs> yeah. I'm gen generally quiet. In a yeah. Way, yeah. You know? And yeah. So it's kind of a chance to, I've always kind of felt this got dichotomy of just everything, life and myself. And, yeah. you know, I don't know if that's just from like some kind of weird, you know, Christian thing or something, but I think it's kind of natural for people to have push and pull, you know. I've always seemed totally like getting on stage. I, I For a long time, I, I used to like throw up and stuff, get so nervous, but I really enjoyed the nerves. I liked the nervous energy because it was like, it was like, you know, adrenaline. It's better than being numb, right? Exactly. If you're not feeling anything before you go on stage, there's something wrong. I guess we got off on our timeline a little bit. So, uh, was the Neckbones your first band? My first band was I played with this when I first got here. I played with uh, Paul Tucker in a band called the Sky Pilots. I played bass with him, and my first ever live show, one of my very first. I don't know if it was the first, but it was. We opened up for Uncle Tupelo. It it was at called Lafayette's at the time, and it was uh, like '91 or something. It was there. There were a three piece. And it was like, man, you know, how was that show? It was amazing. They yeah. just killed it. I mean, they were just so loud. And it was like, you know, the big Ampeg SVT stack and then a Marshall stack. Yeah. And it was just like, it was great. You know, it was, it was, it was nerve wracking, but, uh, 
I played with Paul a lot and for a couple of years. We played a bunch in Memphis. I met a bunch of people. And uh, I would learn that he taught me a lot about music and turned me on to a lot of music at the time that was hard to find. You just couldn't find a lot of stuff around here. You know, like uh, I remember hearing the Gun Club, Fire of Love from him, like cassette tape. Like, yeah. And just being like completely blown away, you know, and like also Big Star first record on cassette. I mean, I remember just sitting in his truck like. And just hearing that and just like, oh, my God, this is what I've always wanted to hear. Yeah. You know, and uh, at the time, there was also a lot of great Memphis stuff happening. So uh, and we would go up there, play some and go to shows well at the Antenna Club and stuff. And it was like Memphis was like uh, this kind of dark noir world, you know, this yeah. dark streets and like yeah. Danger and like these bands. I remember we went and we played. I think we opened up for the Compulsive Gamblers at the time, which was the pre Oblivion's band with uh, Greg Cartwright and Jack Yarborough. Yeah. And uh, they had like a horn section and like uh, a farfisa and like uh, we're just doing this kind of thing that was like uh, kind of like the cramps meets like Tom Waits meets like the. 66 garage stuff or something and uh they just blew me away there's the songs were so great and they were just like the coolest looking people i've ever seen in my life but the funny thing is when paul was just a few years older than me not much but when you're like 20 years old somebody that's like 23 or 4 it's like it's almost like it's different generation gap, sort of. But no, I mean, so I started living with a couple of the guys. We played a show with the Neckbones. They were a three piece. They had already formed and they were playing and like uh, started living with Forrest Hughes, the drummer. And like they wanted to have another person and another singer and guitar player. And I really wanted to play guitar. I, yeah. I played bass. I learned a lot. So I started doing that, you know, and then really started. And I just kind of started writing songs, like, you know, kind of stupid songs. I, I had a I had a 1980 Datsun 510 that I bought for 500 bucks. It started with a screwdriver. And and the cassette tape, I my, the, only, the cassette got stuck in there, and it was a Stooges Funhouse. And I just listened to that for a year. And I didn't try it because I loved it so much. Yeah. But that's totally soaked into the stuff. The first songs I wrote were like just kind of Stooges riffs that I would kind of ripped off, you know. And like, Now, those are the first songs you ever wrote? Those are the first songs I ever I had written like a an instrumental for a B-side of a Sky Pilot single. It was kind of like a Dinosaur Jr. type thing, you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, the first couple, two songs, actually, one night we went into Bruce's studio. At the time, it was called Zombie Birdhouse. And me... And four shoes and a gentry web who's also known as raw cooter and uh this guy named uh oh, another guy who's i can't remember his name right now and we recorded like four songs two of them were mine uh one was called deadbeat which was kind of like a, a stooges and then one was a definite stooges cramps riff and that was called radon gas yeah and so uh i kind of got but well, we recorded it under this band called recession hookers at the time that was a thing because there was a recession it was like today recession hookers like that's that'll be the name but so i already started playing with forest and that's kind of how that happened
We we made four records. Yeah, we did one on our on kind of on our own called Pay the Rent, where we recorded in Memphis. And then uh, then we did one, two with Fat Possum, and we did a 10-inch, which was like nine songs, which was kind of like uh, material we didn't use on the records. Yeah. But the, it turned into a good good record. Yeah. And y'all toured a lot. And we toured quite a bit. We did some two. Yeah, we got we did a tour with uh, RL on the East Coast, and then we went on a European tour with uh, T Model Ford, which was. I think amazing. I've heard some stories from this tour. Yeah, it was really great. It was just so amazing to uh, be with him and get to know him and watch yeah. him play every night. You know, like, were y'all backing him up at all? No, uh, actually, um, we weren't. It was a guy named uh, Brian playing drums with him. So we were just, but, but, which I, I, that's probably a podcast on its own. But, and that was kind of the end of the band in a way, really. Although we never, we've, we have never broken up. Our bass player quit. Uh, a couple of Forrest and David got married and, uh, and it was just like, and they went on, to, they had a, a bunch of, they did a bunch of band. They moved to Nashville and Dave and they have a band, a great band called the Faves, but they also did a, a great band with uh, Scott Rogers and uh, Jack Oblivion uh, called the Cool Jerks. And oh, they, yeah. they made a great record. So, and we were super close friends still, but so I just had a bunch of material and like had been kind of, I was real close to Blue Mountain. Um, you know, so Carrie Hudson's brother, our cousin, Chris Hudson, had a studio in South Mississippi. And so I just went in there, had a bunch of songs, and basically Blue Mountain backed me up at that point on the first, uh, the Preacher's Kids record. So it was going to be a kind of like, I didn't have a name for the band, so I was just like, oh, we'll just call the Preacher's Kids. So uh, did you grow up preacher's kid? I didn't. My dad did like a lot of lay preaching and stuff, but he wasn't a, not a pastor of a church, no. But I was around a lot of preacher's kids. And in a lot of cases, the, the, the stereotype proved true for sure. Well, I guess this is a good time to uh, transition into your book. 
The Mark of Cain, uh, which is uh, coming out soon. Uh, I must confess, though, Tyler, I did not have time to finish reading it uh, since you sent it to me about, oh, I don't know, 25, 26 hours ago. But I did read the first few pages, uh, which are really great and really gripped me. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it. And I guess the first thing I kind of want to talk about is it seems like in the first two pages you give this sort of a really extensive history of this character that I really don't know yet because I haven't read the book. But you even mentioned like uh, him, his ancestors coming from Scotland. You know, you kind of mentioned Scotland like one sentence and like you give this like really quick history, but it's like a really great description of like growing up in like a church culture. Definitely. And so should I be reading this book as sort of you piecing together where you come from or is this completely fictional? I mean, it's sort of about that, but it's kind of about, I grew up, you know, in this Calvinist type philosophy, which I always, and I I had a serious accident when I was five years old. I was hit by a car Hmm. and uh, I was completely terrified of the repercussions of uh, Calvinism. Like, what if you're not one of the chosen, you know? And then I always had this weird affinity for people on the outside in the Bible, the characters. Like, I always felt kind of sympathetic for some of these characters, like King Saul or some of these people that, you know, were, were obviously not the heroes, even like Cain in some way or yeah. or like uh, even Judas or something. And, but anyway, so, you know, it was kind of like, and what I was talking about earlier, sort of this dichotomy of a lot of families. And that, that's where my family comes from. My grandfather's father was murdered in Holmes County, Florida in 1904. My grandfather was two. And he had married into a family that was, uh, you know, kind of bootleggers, whiskey makers and stuff, you know, and I, his wife's brother murdered him. So it was kind of like this. And, and his family was this kind of other dirt farmer Christian type, you know. And yeah. So I was interested in those worlds. And then, and so I was thinking, you know, like the whole Cain and Abel thing. And then it's really kind of about the children of Cain and Abel. And, okay. In some ways, like how, how do you, you're sort of reacting to what's in your blood in a way, like what you, you know, in some ways, and you don't necessarily have a choice. And I mean, sort of like if you're exposed to something long enough, like, the idea of sort of like uh, going straight is kind of a not that not a real possibility, sort of. You know what I mean? I'm sort of so I'm sort of interested in characters like that. That in this book, kind of, and somebody also someone that gets out of prison. So this guy's been in prison. He gets out of prison, and I was also interested from a personal level in a person that comes from like sort of this ambient static state, and then is forced into. Uh, trying to get back to living or something, you know, and like a person that probably has tendencies to do the completely wrong thing at any given moment or like have like hidden uh, anger or issues that he hasn't dealt with, which is going to it's going to cause him to do things that aren't helpful for his future, which he kind of wants to have, you know, something of a normal life. But 
It's not really a possibility in some ways because also I wanted to try to have a character that is surrounded by a natural sense of dread in the story because it's like on all sides, uh, it's kind of untenable and you don't know what the motivations of the people around you are. So, Well, it's interesting to wonder if, you know, growing up with Calvinism, does that play a role in the predestination of this character that you've developed? Somewhat, yeah. I mean, it's also a crime book, so that's kind of like predestined in the yeah. crime book. Man, this is why I love doing this podcast. I mean, not only does this book sound fascinating and just and like having this conversation is fascinating, but also I'm like remembering a story that happened to me when I was a kid, which I had completely forgotten about, which is that I also was almost hit by a car. I think um, I don't know. I was pretty young. We had like left church and we had like stopped by this gas station that we always stopped at. I don't know, to get like a Mountain Dew or something anyways. And I was walking along the sidewalk, you know, right next to the store and this car is pulling up into the, into the uh, parking space. And as it's coming up, it just like doesn't stop. I guess they didn't put it in park or whatever. And so it lunges forward and just runs into the building and whoever was behind me, I can't remember if it was my sister or my mom or dad or whoever it was, but they actually grabbed my shoulder and pulled me back, uh, to where the car didn't hit me and you often just think about like what <laughs> what if that had not happened you know and what what is planned and what is not planned you know? yeah and it's interesting to, to think about how we get into these narratives and these uh, discussions in our mind about life and death and what comes next i used to obsess about these questions like well, what if you if you would have just one second later the person wouldn't have yeah you if know? i'd have just walked in the back you know it could have been someone else in my family and you start to get into like all these scenarios of like what was supposed to happen yeah i, I know i, I you learn to yeah, stop right. thinking about it somewhat and like as you get older but you know it's it took me a, a, so long to to deal with that you know as a kid you know like it was it, i mean it's it's really troubling for children to yeah be, i mean you know you don't know what anything is and i mean maybe like first grade there was like these you know those flannel graph stories of like burning hell and stuff right. and it's just like and you know it's like i would just pray the prayer all every night. You did everything you could to not go there. I was like, and I just, I never, I never felt anything. I never got anything. I never got any feeling of uh, security or anything. Yeah. And I, I think I made like one last big push when I was like 13 or something. I would go out and witness people and pray and all this stuff. And it just, yeah, I just didn't feel it, you know? And then, yeah, but anyway, I don't want to go into that too much. I also was interested at the time. I, I didn't wasn't thinking a lot of, about all these co concepts at the time. I was thinking of it more uh, less conceptually and more just like as the story, you know. But I wanted to. I was interested in people like um, that have been damaged. That like and like an ex-con is the perfect person. Like these, a person that is has this mark you know they're separated from society even when you get out you know i was sort of interested and i had a friend that um practically speaking i'd had a friend that had some addiction issues and it was kind of like homeless and wound up in this like christian shelter in memphis that was like extremely 
problematic and dangerous and they like you they put you in there you could you're free to come and go somewhat at night they lock you in with people and these are people that are it's kind of a halfway house yeah they're, they're people that are from directly from prison they're people that are homeless and then they lock you in there and then they take you out in the morning and you go work to at this place and then you come back and you don't really get paid. They take your your room and board out of this work. Yeah. And you're kind of in this weird like a purgatory. Purgatory. And it, I read some about it. You know, it's it's a nationwide racket. There's yeah, a lot right. of these. You know, and there's a whole industry of like this kind of stuff. Right. You know, that are linked to these prisons and stuff. And you know, and, and we're linked to religion and you know, because they're almost always have a have this like Christian like this is a this is a ministry. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I'm not denying that there's, I'm sure there's a lot of great people that work in that field yeah. and there's probably some good, but I was sort of interested in that in that as a concept. You're released from prison, but then you're put into this situation here where you're not really, where you're still imprisoned and the imprisonment of work, you know, which is, that's a general idea, you know, like of just everyday menial labor, even if you're not an ex-con is like, soul crushing at times yeah and in the book he works in this factory where he buffs out these like uh marble tops that are used in like sinks and stuff and it's just like i i've I've worked in a place like that before and it was just like this mind-numbing work that and then like the the thing rings you know the the corn goes off you have your 15 minute you walk over and you sit down you have your coffee your break and it's like you go back and it's sort of like you know what i mean it's like is this the option right of is this what i have to look forward to (laughs) i mean you know and it's just like so a little of that concept in there as well and then some people need that and some people need like this religion to to so they can make it right and i don't i don't fault anybody or blame anybody about how they do that but you know for certain particular people it's not going to work i got my master's before i got this mfa in in southern studies and i right after that i still um right after i got my master's i still had the ability to use some of their equipment so i put together a gospel show of local oxford fayette county african-american gospel groups and like i saw some people in that music and it was real and i don't know i hadn't really felt anything about religion until I watched this music, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I remember there was a, a group of sisters that were up there, and this woman was, like, saying, I, I had two boys, twin boys, and they had not spoken yet. And the doctor was like, your kids are not going to be normal. They're not, don't expect a miracle. And she was like, they're autistic or something. And she was like, I couldn't accept that. You know, so I I prayed and like my boys are two normal eight-year-old boys or something. And they're in the crowd and they start singing this song. And it's just like, I don't know what that is. I mean, I I can't say that that's not real. I don't feel that. I've never had that experience. Yeah. But someone else had it, and I can't say they're. Oh well, that, that they just psychologically. I I don't know. You know, I, I kind of came to the conclusion I'm more of like the great spirit type person. Yeah. That's what I'm. You know, yeah, I'm getting to that point. I think. You know, just yeah. like like physics and stuff yeah. is involved in the greatness of oneness all you know right, more right. type things yeah. but I, I i'm not really one to articulate that but i i think the character is like beyond 
understanding of any of that. Also, I I mean, I, I hope this, I don't want to say this because people listening might not be interested in the fact that it's also maybe about a middle, middle-aged men, <laughs> somebody who has a second chance and uh, where you, you're kind of, when you get to a certain age, you, you think about all the mistakes you've made and you don't want to do those things anymore and you have uh, regrets and so you have another chance. And when you're faced with similar situations, are you going to do anything different? You know, and like this character is too wrapped up in uh who you never dealt with, dealt with really what he had done and where he what in a way. So the way he reacts is not, but I, I want, I was interested in, you know, and then also interested in, in that sort of something that's in the blood where it's like you just there and there are, you know, people, uh, they yeah. just, they got that gene. They're just always yeah. going to do the wrong thing. Uh, speaking of, you're sober now, right? Yeah. Feels great. I feel better than I have. In you a finished time. a book. I finished a book and a couple records. And, uh, I wasn't, I didn't have a serious addiction necessarily but enough to like make me want to try something different you know i had a good 35 year run you know with alcohol and some extreme alcohol use in my 20s and 30s you know and uh and i I remember being in a bar one time like three or two even three or four years ago even a couple years before i quit and just like thing I, i have lived this exact night a thousand times yeah and I'm so bored with this. Nothing's going to happen. I, I just, why am I doing this? And I just didn't. And uh, and then also getting older and just like, I would just have like a hangover for a day or two. And just like, it would be the most beautiful day of the year. You know, like, you know, October 12th, just like, you know, 72 degrees, beautiful. And I would just sit from inside my house looking out and just, at the end of the day, like I didn't do anything. I didn't go out there. I didn't. I just laid here and like I was like, I, it might be over dramatic. Was like, how many more days like this do you have? So that was part of it, and just kind of bored and like, I amazingly had gotten to that point without serious physical damage, and I felt kind of lucky that because I have had friends. We've had friends that haven't did make it. Yeah, you know, and I feel a lot of guilt about that some ways, and like, yeah, I had a lot of fun too. Believe me, I. <laughs> I had some amazing times, but also did a lot of things that I regret in the spirit of the thing. You know, I, I was like 17 years old and I read Charles Bukowski and I was like, I want to be Charles Bukowski for my 20s. And you realize, that, and then even in Barry Hannon's class, he did say, he's like, I, I, he was talked a little bit about his reputation. He had quit drinking, but he was like, you really need to find inside yourself you need to find this quiet cool mm-hmm. that's your creative center you like all this stuff like you know he's like i never wrote a, a word when i was drunk that was any good or stuff mm-hmm. it's like you need to just find this quietness and a cool center in yourself yeah you know and that uh, i really took that to heart
He was my neighbor as well as my teacher. He lived next door to me uh, over by the ice house. He, um, you know, I was in his class for a couple of semesters and like learned a lot there. And then he, as a neighbor, I, I, we, I would give him my records because he's a big rock and roll fan. Yeah. And he really liked the, the music. He really liked my third a Preacher's Kids album. It's kind of a big mess. Everything kind of fell apart. Um, partially burned up and uh, well our record all burned up in the, the easily fire and andrew ratcliffe was uh kind enough to give us a deal to come in there and re-record it but barry hannah liked it and it was like i didn't have a label and he wanted to write some liner notes and i was like so embarrassed because i didn't have a label or didn't know what was gonna and i was like well let's just wait to see what's gonna happen which yeah i should have said please write that but he really liked, he kept up with my um, songs and was always very encouraging. But um, right. I think he, you know, and partially writing this book was to try to combat his idea that you couldn't do both. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, right. And, uh, but he was right because I slowed down in writing songs right when I started on this book. It is super terrifying to have this thing. Like, I'm so afraid. Like, I have so many friends that are just, the greatest writers like i think oxford has six or seven of the best writers anywhere yeah it's really insane and it's great but uh it's intimidating but it's it, it's 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 I don't know. like writing a three-minute song is like because it because you know yeah it, people don't like it you only wasted three minutes of their day right. i already know it's good so i don't care <laughs> yeah yeah, you don't yeah. Like it. right right but in uh, you know a book i don't know i'm not confident it took me a, a couple of years to get through the first draft which was like forty thousand words or something yeah. it was short and then i had some readers and my next door neighbor jimmy ty is a really great writer then I gave it to some other people here, and they're like, you need to, and my friend Ace Atkins read it, like, you need to expand this to this other whole section you haven't even gone into, you know? And yeah. like, I did that, and that took another, because I was also working a lot during this time, and uh, and going to school some, and yeah. writing, uh, so it was kind of like, it was in these spurts, uh, I would write for a while, and then, you know, like, take a week or something, and it's so, amazing what you can accomplish in a week if you just take a week and say, like, yeah. I'm going to write this week. And I found it, like, in songs as well, like, your subconscious will work things out. If you're if you're in the mindset, right? It's all you're always working on that. I always had, I had that with songs a lot, is that, you know, I'd have, like, a title and some a little bit of some stuff. And the, the part of your brain that you don't use to walk around and, you know— open doors and shit <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> still working uh if you're in that right mindset i mean for my whole life since i started writing songs i've been close to that you know like always had that part activated always you know trying to and it's probably why i'm completely like incapable of paying attention in a conversation a lot of times you know what i mean but like sometimes like you're talking to somebody and you're like uh-huh and like, wait, what? Can you? Yeah, yeah. Because I was just thinking about the song or something. Right. But I tried to apply that uh, muscle to um, working on this book and other writing like that. And, and it works. It's a little bit, you know, it, it kind of has to work overtime. There's certain things that apply to songs that I think apply to any writing, which is uh, 
beginning and middle and end mm -hmm. and you have to get rid of anything that you don't need you know uh try to be clear and like one thing from songs that i tried to apply to this is like there was like a you have to have a hook i remember reading brian wilson said that you have like 14 seconds in a song to catch someone's attention so like your first verse has to be good like i may not always love you right. as long as there are stars you're, yeah, you're yeah, in yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what i mean so i i think you kind of have to think of that in any in like chapters and books and try to get people in there what got what i realized was like oh, the record company you'd be like what you didn't sell a lot of records yeah. and my point is you're the record company that is your job you're supposed to sell <laughs> yeah. my record yeah i gave you a good product went out and toured on it yeah and if I, don't say i didn't sell any that's what you do you're yeah. a record company right if you couldn't sell any more than 500 copies you suck at your job there's 328 million people in this country. Yeah. You can sell a fucking widget to any <laughs> more more of those on the street than you sold in my record. Yeah. So don't try to put it on me. Right, right. I don't know. I, I Once I realized that, I could let everything go and be like, it's not my, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't the record. It was like, these people don't know what they're doing. I don't know. But I think of like the scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where John Candy is selling like, you know, the, the, <laughs> the shower curtain things yeah. all over the, you know, the airport to get a little money. Yeah. And it's like, this guy could sell more of my records than, than this record company. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I will admit like our, uh, especially the preacher's kids, we had five members. And we were heavyweight consumers of beer. <laughs> yeah. We could put down some alcohol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's probably where a lot of the, the money went. Ain't got no money. Ain't got no fans. I'll think real funny. Cruising in our van. Gotta get tossed out. Gotta rock books too. Gotta merchandise. Give away to you. Hey, I love you, rock and roll. Ah. Hey, I love you, rock and roll. Ah. I've just recently been able to put a lot of resentment away and a lot of ideas about not getting to where I wanted to get in the music business per se, but uh I really don't care anymore about any of that because I've got two bands here in Oxford. I've got a great band with my friends, Teardrop City with Lori Sturt, George Sheldon, Van Thompson. We made a great record that I love. They're great musicians, great people. They're my best friends. And I've got another band, The Apostles, with Max Hip, Beau Bourgeois, and Van Thompson. Great friends, and we're good. We're a great band. And I'm pretty sure most of them are going to be here for the duration. And I'm going to be here. So I, I'm looking at the rest of my life with two great bands that, I, that I'm in. And it's like, you know, that's a good place to be. You know, like I, I can make music for the rest of my life. I don't have to go anywhere, or do anything. And like, I'm going to make music with my friends that are super talented and I can do whatever I want.
Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>